0: How many of you would say that you just love waiting? Just love to wait. Waiting is your favorite. Right? Anyone? I didn't think so. Oh, oh, one key. No, not really. Sarcasm. That's your gift. That's why we get along so well. Um, you're just sitting there. You, you, you've ordered your package on Amazon Prime and it takes five days and that makes you excited and happy right? You're late leaving home, and you catch every red light, and you just love that. You're just sitting there as time ticks away. I mean, the truth is, generally speaking, we are not a patient people. We don't like waiting or having to persevere to get what we want. We want it now. We want it to be easy. We don't like to wait. We want what we want right away, and there are Many things around us in the culture that reflect that value, that reality for us. You think about ATM machines, right? If I need cash, I don't want to have to wait till the bank opens. I don't want to stand in line. I don't want to deal with a human being. I want it now. Punch some numbers in, get my cash. Fast food, right? If you wait more than two minutes for your order, you're super annoyed. You're like, I just can't. I just can't even, right? Food took more than two minutes, Um, Miracle weight loss pills. Uh, Hey, lose 20 pounds in a month without dieting or any discipline. Just continue to eat everything you want to eat. Easy credit. No money down. We could just go on and on and on this list of things that really reflect back to us our values as a people that we don't like waiting. We don't want to persevere. We don't have to work hard to get somewhere. We just want it. We want it now. Patience and persistence kind of go hand in hand. And we're definitely an impatient people which is why we also lack persistence. And so in stark contrast to that reality that we live in, today's parable in our series teaches us that we very much need both patience and persistence. We need patience and persistence. So let me define that word for you this morning. Persistence is a noun. It is firm or obstinate continuance in a course of action in spite of difficulty or opposition. Did you catch that? Two parts. It's this, I'm going to continue in this course of action, but it doesn't matter if there's opposition. It doesn't matter if there's difficulty. I'm going to push through. That's this idea of persistence. Teacher asked little Tommy, she said, Tommy, can you tell me the difference between persistence and obstinacy? And Tommy was a very quick-witted child, and he said, one is a strong will, and the other is a strong won't. Right? Right? Right, you've all been in the store. You've seen the little kid begging for candy. Please, please, mommy, please, please. Like if you elongate the syllables somehow, mom will hear you at a level she hasn't heard you. Right, all the please, the please, the please coming out. Right, the, the, the child thinks if if he keeps on asking for candy, mom will give in, and sometimes she does. Dads tend to give in more quickly. Just FYI, we just kind of crumble quickly. Moms more persistent in resisting. Children are persistent in asking. And so that please, using the please as a persistence, but using the please and continuing long after mom has said, no, that's obstinacy, right? Can we just make that delineation, make that difference there? And so the context of the parable this morning, um, as we talk about persistence, is at this point, the religious leaders have met. They have officially made the decision, the Sanhedrin, the ruling council to put Jesus to death. And we see this in John 11 verses 45 to 54. So they have made the decision. They have officially decided this guy has to die. And the Pharisees, it's interesting, they're going to take a back seat now to the Sadducees. There are two groups, right? And uh, the Sadducees are moving forward with the agenda. And this was motivated all the more by Jesus' openly talking about his resurrection. So remember, they did not believe in a resurrection from the dead at all. And that's why the Sadducees were sad, you see. That's Sunday school humor from when I was five. Come on. I need to know that you're here and that you're awake. Man, it doesn't get any better than this, right? Jesus gives instructions to his disciples regarding the coming of the Son of Man, his return. And he will echo these things later um, when he's out on the Mount of Olives with his disciples in Matthew 24 and 25. But knowing that there's going to be a gap of time and the length of that gap is undisclosed. We know that it's been at least 2,000 years, right? Before he comes back, he gives them this parable. This is the context. So so here we are in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. If you have your Bible, you're going to flip there. We're We're going to look at this parable in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So let's go back let's break down the text. Let's take a closer look. Look at verse one again. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So here's the explicit purpose stated for the parable and how it relates to that context. Jesus is going to want them, his disciples, the future apostles, to later on return to this truth when things get hard and he hasn't come back yet, right? Well, we thought it'd be like, a week or a couple of months, you get things organized in heaven. Bring the angelic armies back and destroy Rome, right? They're going to need perseverance and persistence. And so Jesus is giving them this parable, and he says to them, "So that you do not lose heart." That's a big deal. Right? So that you do not lose heart. And he said, verse two: In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. So inner the first of our main characters in the parable, the local judge. So first of all, the judge has absolutely no fear of God. Proverbs tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's it's the starting point of wisdom. We we would want and expect our judges, those who rule over us, to be wise. And so how this guy got this position, I don't know. I don't know. right? But think about those two statements. Um, He has no fear of God. He has no respect for human beings. So there's no accountability for him at all in terms of his behavior. He shows no respect for God's word, no respect for God's sense of justice, no consideration for God's wisdom. And and there's no worry that someday he's going to have to stand in in a reckoning and give an account for his behavior and his decisions before God because he doesn't care about that. He's a locked and loaded loose cannon on deck firing wherever he wants to fire. And, and so this judge just doesn't care enough about God. He makes up his own form of justice as it suits his personal fancy. What's worse, that second phrase says he has no respect for human beings. This means he's free to use his courtroom to abuse people. In his world, people in his courtroom are interruptions, problems, headaches, hassles. They're not human beings made in the image of God who need help or justice. They're hassles for him. And so this is what we know about the judge in this story. Here's a summation on the judge. He didn't fear God, number one. Number two, he didn't respect man. And number three, he was unrighteous. Unrighteous. Verse three. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. So, okay, so we know there's a certain widow who's being harassed by a local villain. We're not told exactly how this villain is harassing her, but we can guess that he was either intimidating her physically, attempting to exploit her in some way, threatening to sue her maybe, but regardless, the local villain or the adversary is working over this poor widow who had no means. She has no recourse to protect herself from this man. No money, she has no connections, no status, nowhere to run for help. It's a really bad situation the widow finally realizes she might just have one hope, right? One recourse. Her one shot is to go before the local judge and plead her case to throw herself on the mercy of this local judge. And so she decides to do that. Now understand that widows had an even more difficult position in the first century. They were quite literally unprotected, right? Many of them became homeless and destitute when their husbands died. Often they were taken in by cunning con men, including some religious leaders who would do this stuff. In fact, Jesus in Mark 12, 40 is really frustrated at religious leaders who he says, quote, devour widows' houses. A sin that uh, made him very angry that they would do that. Especially as those who are supposed to be leading them towards God, not taking advantage of widows, right? So in order to dis- to survive... This widow has to fend for herself. She can't count on anybody to come to her aid. And she has to assume that others are going to try to take advantage of her. That's a pretty hard place to be. So here's what we know about the widow. Here's a summary on the widow. Number one, she had an adversary. Number two, she couldn't solve her own problem. Number three, she was persistent. And number four, she had a genuine need. It was a legitimate, genuine need. So do you have a picture now? of what's going on here in your mind. We have a desperate widow who's being villainized, whose only recourse is to throw herself on this judge's mercy, hoping that he might provide protection for her. We have a judge whose license plate on his Ferrari says live for self, who doesn't care about God, doesn't care about people, right? And and so... um, don't some of you just want to say to the widow, like, don't waste your time going to court. Just forget about that option. You, you can just predict what's going to happen when she goes to court, right? Verse four. So for a while he refused. He refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me. I love the translation that uses the word pester. She keeps pestering me. I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down or wear me down by her continual coming. So it happens. The widow comes to plead her case. She throws herself on the mercy of the court. She says, I only want my rights. I have nowhere else to turn. You're my only hope. Obi-Wan Kenobi, help me. You're my only. Sorry, I just read those in my notes. And that was immediately what came into my mind. Like, please, judge, please. You, 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 have, you, know, you probably could guess this crooked judge laughs in her face and throws her out in the street. And so the plot thickens at this point because this widow is so hurt. She's so shocked by the judge's behavior that she gathers her wits. She kind of takes inventory and, and with this wartime res- resolution, this resolve in her heart, she, she says to herself, I don't, I don't have any other options. I don't have anybody to protect me. I have no power to wield. I have no money to hire attorneys. I have no connections to, to go to. Here I am, I'm being harassed by this adversary, and then this judge who represents my only hope has no interest in helping me at all. So she says, Here's what I'm gonna do, right? I'm gonna pester this stinking judge until he offers me protection, until he either puts me in jail or kills me, right? I'm just, every time he turns around, I'm gonna be right in his face. I'm gonna follow him home, I'm gonna follow him to work. I'm going to follow him to the racetrack. Every time he turns around, he's going to see me and I'm going to pester him until he honors my request or um, I'm sleeping with the fishes, right? One or the other. I'm going to create some kind of response, some kind of action, even if it kills me. So she does that. She starts to pester this judge. And then guess what? It works. It works. She pesters the judge into submission. She aggravates him to the point where he's just, it's like he's leaning out the window of his office going, I can't take it anymore. Please, somebody come help this widow, right? He's just aggravated. And so the happy ending of the story is that the widow finally receives protection from this crooked, uncaring judge, but only because of her extraordinary ability to pester the stew out of of people. So evidently the facts of the case didn't move him. He had no desire to see justice done. To him, she's just a bothersome woman. And then note this really key point. His only motive for helping her was utterly selfish. He only helped her because she was persistent and he wanted her out of his life, completely gone. So this is what the Lord says, verse six. Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So she kept coming. She kept bothering him until he feared that she would beat him down or wear him down with her continual coming to him, right? So from beginning to end, he doesn't care about the woman. He doesn't feel her pain. He's not worried that she's not getting justice. He only gives her what she wants because he wants to be done with her. So in the morning she's like give me justice. And then when he's on his lunch break. It's like give me justice. Right? You would get really tired of this. Like, this just, just is like an example this week. I'm going to come to one of your houses randomly. At 7 a.m. And I'm going to pound on the door and be like give me justice. And then I'm going to follow you to work. And on your lunch break I'm going to be like boom, 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 boom. Give me justice. What are you doing? I'm just, I wanted you to get the parable. I wanted to, the parable to kind of sink into your life this week. I'm not telling you who it is one of you, I'm just going to show up. So just watch out. But you got to give the widow credit, right? She, she never gave up. She got what she wanted. Give the judge a little credit. He gave her justice, even though he did it for the wrong motive. So what's the moral of our story? It pays to pester, right? Is that the moral of the story? It's the only way to get what you need from some people Some of you know the moral of the story. You you practice it every week in your marriage. You practice it in your workplace. Uh, This story was originally told by Jesus to encourage people to pray and to not lose heart. So over the years, as believers have read the story in Luke 18, some believers have not read the story carefully, have not even finished reading the story, and therefore some believers have made a grave error in their understanding about the moral that this parable teaches. You see, some Christ followers actually Read the story right up to the part where I conclude and they say, "Aha! I get it. This is a parable. This is allegory." And the wheels start turning. They're like, "Okay, so we're we're human beings just like the widow. Penniless, powerless, no status, no connections. We face huge problems in our life, challenges, unresolved conflicts, and we can't handle them alone. We've got nowhere to run. And so we have to seek help from somebody." Yeah, see so it fits. Just like the desperate widow, we need help. And then, and, then they, and then they turn and they go, and, and then God is like the judge. I mean, he's busy doing all kinds of other stuff. He's busy. He's got a universe to operate and angels to keep in line and harps to tune and uh, all kinds of other stuff going on up there that we don't even know about, right? So, so there, there are just so many needy people coming to him. I really shouldn't bother him unless it's really important. And if I'm really desperate, then I better do what the widow did and I'll just pester him. I'll just bang on the doors of heaven until I get what I need. And maybe I'll, talk, I'll, I'll call some friends and I'll get them to pester God. And then sooner or later, I'm going to wear him down. Sooner or later, I'm going to wrench a blessing out of the closed fisted hand of God. Sooner or later, God's going to just shout, I can't take it anymore. Would you just leave me alone here? And he'll give me what I want. And does that, does that sound right to you? Does that sound like a proper interpretation of that story? Can I just, just parenthetically, that, that better not sound right to you. That better not sound right to you. We are not like the powerless widow. I mean, often I talk with people who are absolutely convinced that the greatest challenge associated with prayer is finding some lost key to prayer that will somehow unlock the vault of love and blessing and power from God that he doesn't want us to open or that he's keeping hidden from us somehow. And I get so tired of reading titles in Christian bookstores. And so just in my, if you're seeing the text in your mind as I say these things, put Christian in quotes. Christian bookstore, okay? Because half the books you go in there and see aren't even really Christian. Um, But I get so tired of reading titles in Christian bookstores talk about finding the secret for wrenching that blessing out of God's tightly closed fist. There's some mysterious way to get past his reluctance, to finagle away, to persevere, pester our way into his presence. Please don't ever think of God in that way. That is not who God is. That is not what God is like. It's completely wrong. Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones, his elect ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? So asking a rhetorical question, expecting a negative answer. That's pretty common in the Scripture. The answer is no, he won't keep putting them off. I tell you, he will see that they get justice quickly, speedily. So, Jesus is giving you the meaning of the story right here at the end of the story. He's saying it's not an allegory, it's a study in opposites, it's a study in contrasts. Jesus is saying, Hey, people, you are not like the widow. In fact, you're the opposite of her. Like The widow was poor and powerless and forgotten and abandoned. No relationship with the judge. She's just a face. She's just a problem. And Jesus is saying, you are God's children if you put your faith in me. And you're totally unlike that. You are God's heirs. You are not abandoned. You've been adopted. You've been adopted. It's not hopeless for you. God says, I don't forget about you. You're a priority because you're related to me by blood. You're related to me because you've been adopted. You're my sons and daughters. And this was one of the problems that the widow had. She had no relation in any significant way to the judge. Maybe if she had, that was an in, but she didn't have that. She was just a number. Jesus says, you're totally unlike that widow because you're related to me in the most intimate of ways. You are my brothers and sisters. In the father's courtroom, you're not a problem you're not a hassle. You're not a number or a bag lady or a street person. You're his children and you matter deeply to him. So don't you ever again decide not to pray because you think you're the penniless, powerless, faceless, nameless, forgotten widow. That's not who you are. You you are made in the image of God. You've been claimed and adopted as members of his own family. And and, then, and then there's the judge, right? I mean, God is not like the unjust judge. The judge was an uncaring jerk. He lacked all compassion for the widow. He only finally granted her a wish because she kept on pestering him. But if that's true, why would Jesus use an illustration like this? He seems to be calling us to persistence in prayer by using an example of a man who is nothing like our heavenly father. By drawing a stark contrast to the way that the father sees us is to, so that we don't lose heart is to give us encouragement, right? There's nothing going on in the cosmos that would keep him from directing his full attention to your conversation or your request. But please just, I want you to stop and hear that again and let it sink in deeply. There is nothing going on in the universe right now that would keep him from directing his full attention to your conversation with him and the request that you bring to him. You are not the widow. You're so far from being the widow. God says, you're my children. You don't tiptoe into the courtroom and think of yourself as a number. You just come in and say, hey, dad. Hey, dad. Because you're my kids. I love you. I want to hear your voice. You're not like the widow. And do, do I even need to say it again? God's not like the judge. The judge is crooked and unrighteous and unfair. He's disrespectful, uncaring. God is righteous and just. He's holy and tender and responsive and sympathetic to us. The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Man, if you don't understand anything else about God, just just taste and see that he's good. Don't think for one minute that you somehow have to figure a way to wrench a blessing out of his hand. God's word teaches that God loves to bestow blessing. He loves to bestow favor and power and benefits to his children. He loves us. It's his nature. It's who he is. To borrow from a popular song, he's a good, good father. That's just who he is. That's his nature. He's a giving God, a blessing God, an encouraging God, a nurturing God, an empowering God, a loving God. The list goes on and on. God wants to hear our prayers. Listen, do not give up praying. Your persistent prayers do not annoy God. Did you know that? They may annoy the people around you They may annoy you. (laughs) You may get annoyed with your persistent prayers. God does not get annoyed. He does not. They don't wear him out. And here's the key thought for us this morning. Persistence in prayer is not a lack of faith. It's proof of it. Persistence in prayer is not due to a lack of faith. It is proof of faith. The more something matters to our hearts, the more something matters to God, the, the, the larger the issue or the request, the more time it may take to see that thing come about. We need to persevere in prayer. We continue to knock on the door of heaven in prayer. It's not born out of doubt or worry, but our continually knocking on the door of heaven is rooted in confidence in the character of the judge of all the living and the dead. We know who he is. We know that he loves us. And so we continue to ask because we know that he hears us. There's also an end times aspect to this last sentence in the parable. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Brothers and sisters, we should not give up expecting Christ's return. We should not give up expecting that he is coming back for the church. Jesus had just taught about the second coming in Luke 17, verses 20, all the way up to 37. He had just warned his followers that they were going to face persecution prior to his returning. He said, whoever tries to keep his life or save it is going to lose it. And whoever loses or gives up his life is going to save it or preserve it, right? So there's this inversion of our natural tendency to say, I wanna, I wanna protect me. And he says, no, go, go and let me protect you. Let me have my way with you. You be my ambassadors. And you'll have eternal life, right? Where there's persecution, there's a temptation to give up. There's a temptation to give up. We don't know this experientially. Like our persecution is like, oh my gosh, I think, I think the barista heard us like talking about Jesus. She didn't put any whipped cream on my latte. I'm so being persecuted for Jesus right now, right? <laughs> our, let me just tell you, our brothers and sisters around the world, nearly 100 million Christians martyred in the 20th century. More people martyred for their faith for Jesus Christ in the 20th century than all previous 19th centuries combined. It's been estimated that 130,000 to 170,000 people die every year as a result of violence against Christians around the world. That means more than 2,500 people of our brothers and sisters die every week. More than 357 of our Christian brothers and sisters die every day. That's more than... 14 every hour. That's, that's a brother and sister in Christ dying for Jesus every 4.5 minutes. As we've been here this morning, several of our brothers and sisters have been put to death because of their faith. We have not known that kind of persecution. We must learn to persevere in prayer. We must learn to become a people marked by prayer. We cannot afford to continue as a largely prayerless church in a culture that's increasingly marked by the dominion of our enemy. We cannot afford not to pray. And one of the signs that God is going to do a great work is he begins to stir up his people to pray for it. He just begins to stir up his people. He lays a burden on people here and on a person over there, and he brings it back to their minds again and again, and it stalks them, and it drives them to their knees. And when you begin to see that happening, God is getting ready to do something. And, and I read about the moves of God all throughout church history, and I long to see that in our day. I see it just, just a, in our little church <laughs> right here. I see the insufficiency of strength. I see the insufficiency of resources. And just, just, just even the stuff we need to survive as a church, I go, we don't even have that. We don't even have enough. And then in moments of total honesty and abject humility, I see how prayerless we are as a people, how prayerless I am as your pastor. And I'm convicted deeply about that reality. And it, and it drove me this week as I was thinking about this and I was wrestling with this and I was feeling that conviction. I went back to James chapter four, verse two, and then James is just right in my face. And he says, you have not because you... Ask not. I mean, he goes on to talk about you, you, you ask and you don't get it because you ask with wrong motives to spend it on your own pleasures. And we could talk about that and we could unpack what it means for Christians to ask with wrong motive and not receive. And that's totally valid, right? We could spend time. But can we just back up to the other sentence? Like, can we just start where James starts and says, you don't have it because you don't even ask for it. So, so <laughs> that means, and this will be hard for some of you. This would be hard. There are blessings that you and I have not experienced that God has set aside and wants to give us that he withholds until we ask. We have lacked because we haven't asked. Some of us have not experienced the fullness of what God desires for us because we're not men and women of prayer. You just need to know this is autobiographical, okay? I don't stand in judgment over any of you. I'm going like, this is so convicting to my heart. I am personally convinced that as a church, we are not experiencing the fullness of what God wants for us because we're largely not a praying church. And I know some of you, even at this moment, though, you're still weighing in on God's omniscience and his foreknowledge. And you're struggling with what I'm saying about not, well, he knows, but but I need, but, he, well, but but I didn't ask, but he knows, right? And you're struggling. So can I just give you some scriptures here just to paint a picture of Philippians 4, 6. Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, and then, what? The peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He didn't say, "You know what? You don't have to do. You don't have to do anything. You're a follower of Christ, and I'm just going to put that 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 surpassing peace on you." And because I, I already know, that's not, not what the text says. He says, "Don't be anxious, and then pray, and make those things known to God, and then." in the timeline, then that peace comes upon you. Some of us are not experiencing the peace of God in our lives because we're not people of prayer. It's one of the blessings, right? One of the benefits of prayer is a peace that passes understanding. I look at my circumstances and I go, I do not know why I'm not freaking out right now, right? Because of the peace of God. But if we're not praying, we shouldn't expect that. Matthew 7, 5, Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. So, so Jesus is putting the response ability, see two words hyphenated, response and ability, right? The ability to respond. He's putting that to actively seek God and his will and his blessings and his provision. He's putting that responsibility on you and me. You ask and you seek and you knock and the door will be opened. It's not a passive relationship. James 1.15 James says earlier in his, in his letter, he says, if you lack wisdom, then ask God because he gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. If you lack wisdom, ask him. Romans 8, 26. Paul says, listen to this. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. I'm so glad because I feel so weak so often, right? For we don't even always know how to pray like we should. You ever do that? You ever go, okay? I'm I'm finally gonna uh, get alone. I'm I'm, I'm tranquilize the children, and they're not gonna bother me for the next five minutes. And I just need to pray. And then you get to that place. You, I just don't even. I can't even find words. I don't even know what to say. God, I don't even know what to say to you. And the Spirit intercedes with groanings that are too deep for our words. He just, he's in us, and he. But we have to. We have to make the decision that we're gonna do that. We have to come to the place of prayer. Jude verse 20 is the last one I'll give you here. He says, but you beloved building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. It's a a building up of our faith when we pray and on and on and on. There are probably a dozen more verses that I did not include in my notes, but the simple solution to the dilemma of God's omniscience and our prayer and those blessings that we don't get is that he just set it up this way. He set it up this way. This is his doing, Right, And his chief end in giving us prayer as a means of communicating is ultimately our ongoing humility. It keeps us in a place of humility because prayer is the growth of the soul as we come in contact with God. And as our soul grows, our prayer life deepens. When you first came to Christ, when you first profess faith in Jesus, there's a place of humility that says, You're God and I'm not God. And you're perfect and holy and I'm sinful and fallen. And, and there needs to be an exchange. We, theologians call this the great exchange, right? His righteousness and perfect holiness for my sin. And we swap out. And all that sin that was for me, that was on my life now is on Jesus at the cross. And he pays the penalty for that. And his blood covers me. And I receive now his righteousness and his holiness. And that exchange happens. And then here's the thing, like that wasn't a one-time deal. It was a one-time deal because now you are saved. But then every time you pray that great exchange is ongoing, except we're adding now to the mix, not just his righteousness for my sin, his strength. Now for my weakness, his sufficiency for my insufficiency And man, coming to God and being like, I'm insufficient, I'm weak, I'm powerless, is humility, is humbling. It's funny, God never prays because he's not insufficient. He's not weak. He doesn't need from us. We're the ones called to pray. Dr. G. Campbell Morgan said this about believers who are reluctant to commit themselves wholeheartedly to Christ in prayer. He said this, when our convictions are yielded to him completely, he is able to give us, give himself to us in all his fullness. Until that is so, until we're completely yielded, he cannot trust us. How true it is that we often miss the joy and strength of our Christianity because by withholding ourselves from Christ, we make it impossible for him to give himself to us in the fullness of his grace and truth. When we hold back, he can't pour all of himself out like he wants to. It's us who are withholding. It's us who are holding back. The great theologian, Wayne Gretzky, (laughs) said, you miss 100% of the shots you never take. If we're not praying, we're missing. If we're not praying, we are missing. If we, as the people of faith, are to successfully confront the challenges of this millennium, we need to do a better, we need, here's what we don't need. We don't need a better understanding of modern church methodology and techniques. What we do need is we need prayer. We need to be a people of prayer. We need a fresh commitment to the practice and power of believing prayer. The modern church, when it comes right down to it, is largely a prayerless church. And so what what I'm trying to say is there are many in the church today who lack persistence in prayer and in pursuit of Christ because they lack resolve. They've never really committed to the heart of the pursuit. They've not really counted the cost of discipleship, of following Jesus. They've not looked at the brevity of this life Right and compared it to the expanse of eternity forever and found the now weighed and wanting and looked at the yet to come and experienced a heart filled with inexpressible joy and longing. It's a story of um, William Wilberforce when he was younger. You'll know the name. He fought for uh, abolition of slavery in the British Empire. And he was very discouraged one night in the early 1790s After another defeat in his 10 year battle against the slave trade in England, and he was tired and he was frustrated and he opened his Bible and he was just going to leaf through his Bible. You ever do that? You're discouraged. You go, okay, I'm just going to do the magic Bible thing. I'm just going to turn the pages and then stick my finger in. And that's going to be the verse that's going to just minister to my heart. Right? N- nobody but me, right? Okay. Um, and so he was leafing through the Bible and and, the, and out this piece of paper falls out. And it was a letter that had been written to him by John Wesley shortly before John Wesley died. And Wilberforce read it again for the first time in a long time. And here's what the letter said. Unless the divine power has raised you up, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that abominable practice of slavery, which is of religion, of England, and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go in the name of God and in the power of his might. How true this is in church planting year two. Right? Listen, folks, unless God has raised us up and called us to this community at this moment in time, I cannot see how we can endure the hardship of being a little fledgling church in a culture that's indifferent to the things of God. I cannot see how we will last. But if God has done this, it will persevere. We're like the church of Philadelphia in Revelation 3. Listen to what Jesus said to this church. He says, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, that no one is able to shut. I know that you have only a little bit of strength or power, and yet you keep my word and have not denied my name. He says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And sometimes I hear people say that since God knows everything we say before we say it, and he knows everything we think before we think it, and that's all true, right? That we should never repeat ourselves in prayer. That's not true. We don't pray to inform God about anything. He knows what we're thinking long before we voice our prayers. But the simple answer is, we pray to express our total dependence on him in every circumstance of life. And then there's this other component which just blows my mind, and it's just really simple. He wants relationship. He wants relationship. He wants the interaction. He wants us to come to him. So as we continue to pray for the same things for our loved ones over and over again, this godly desire of the heart grows stronger and we're reminded every day that we're 100% dependent on him and that he is near and he will never leave us or forsake us and that we can't live on yesterday's blessings and we can't depend on yesterday's prayers. So just like Paul in Ephesians 1, we keep asking and keep asking on behalf of ourselves and others. So here are two two quick truths I wanna leave you with this morning. One is God is interested God is interested in your prayers because he's interested in you. He's interested in you. He loves you. He's so interested in you that whatever you ask or want to talk to him about is a priority for his attention. God has the universe functioning quite smoothly at the moment. And and, and so nothing in the universe matters to him. It's not like, I can't really listen to you right now. I'm trying to get Pluto spinning again. I just, I don't know how that stopped. I I was just looking away for just a minute. Can you, could you just wait? never. God said that never. Right. And so he's got the whole universe functioning and none of that matters to him as much as what is going on in your heart. You don't have to pester him to get his attention. You don't have to grovel. You don't have to flail on the ground. You don't have to bite your lip and moan to show God that you mean really mean business. Right. If one of my kids ever said to me, daddy, daddy, please, 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 daddy, I beg of you. I petition you, daddy. I'm pleading with you to listen to my need. I'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Time out. Time out. I'm a a little offended by the implication of what you're saying. Why would you think that you had to like plead like that to get my attention? I love you. You're my kid, (laughs) right? Parents, yes, you'd be like, "What are you doing? What are you doing? What can I do for you? Nothing in my life is more important than you. What what gives me greater pleasure in life than meeting the needs of my children? (laughs) Do you have a problem? Bring it to Jesus. He's interested. And when you bring it to him, do you know what sense you're going to get after you're done praying? Do you know what's going to happen? You're going to go, why did I wait so long? Why did I resist doing that? And he's just waiting to talk to you. Bring it to him again. Listen, hear this. God is interested in your prayers because he's interested in you. You are his children. If you've placed your faith in Jesus. And then secondly, not only is God interested, but God is able. God is able to answer your prayer, whatever it is. God's interest beyond God's interest is God's ability. And I'm very grateful that God is interested. But if you were interested and unable What good would it be, right? Scripture says don't worry about whether or not God can handle your problem. Don't worry about whether or not God is capable of handling your problem. Creating the stars wasn't much of a problem. Creating this world wasn't a big problem. Stealing storms with a word, not a problem. Resurrection of the sun, not a problem. So so you know what God would say to your heart this morning? Your problem is not a problem. He's able. He's able. He's able. So, so I want to ask you, what are you praying for right now? What are you praying for? Family member to come to Christ? A loved one with cancer? Or maybe you're battling a sickness yourself? Are you praying for victory over a stubborn habit or addiction? Are you asking God for wisdom to make a big decision? For guidance for the future? For a, for a mate? Some of you young, younger folks? Are you praying for a wayward son or daughter? Are you praying for a marriage that's on the rocks? Are you praying for God to raise up leaders in your church? I am. <laughs> I'm watching some of you. I'm praying. Are you praying for deliverance from a critical spirit? Are you praying for a deeper walk with God? A growing love for others? A grace to forgive those who've hurt you? Are you praying for hope for the future? Money to pay your bills? Relief from discouragement? What are you praying for? Physical healing? Courage to keep going, boldness to share Christ. Let me, can, whatever, whatever's on your list, I hope that you just kind of went down the list, maybe two or three, five, maybe you got 50 things. I don't know what your list is. I just add something to your list. Pray for persistence. Pray for gritty determination to hang on to the Lord until one of three things happens. God gives you the answer. God changes the circumstances. God removes the burden altogether. You need persistence. You got to hang in there. God is greatly glorified when we do not give up in prayer. You never know what God is going to do. I want to give you something tangible this week. We're going to just take the next couple of minutes here to pray together. And as we pray, the band will come back. Um, I want us to stop. We didn't do our prayer time to get to today together in our uh, generosity time. i was saving it for now because um, we stand on the cusp of potentially being able to move out of the school and into uh, space uh, right in downtown Stanwood, right along Highway 532. And uh, it's, it's just kind of hanging out there in space right now, waiting on all the people who make those decisions. The church is actually leasing the space that wants to kind of move out of that space and the landlord and for all those parties involved to say, yes, it's a go, move in. Right, and then and on top of that, for God to say, yeah, and here's some resources to make sure that you don't step into a situation you can't actually meet the need, right? And so, so there's all these things connected to this. The cool thing about this space is it's right along the uh, 532 corridor, and so 33,000 cars a day past the signage that would be on the road. Um, the church that's been there reports to us like we've had tons of people just coming off the street and be like, we saw your sign, we thought we'd check it out. So visibility in the community it would be advantageous to us in so many ways. And yet, here's what, here's what your leadership team is saying. We don't want this if this is not what God wants for us, right? We don't want to step into something that is not God's provision for us just because it looks good and, and we can see the potential there. We need to hear from the Lord. We need to, he needs to really give us the confidence that this is his will. So can we stop right now? I just want to, I want to pray for this space right in downtown Stanwood, right along Highway 532. Um, and I want to ask you right where you are, either alone with a spouse, with somebody next to you, just, just for the next two or three minutes, just pray for that. And then I'll come back. I'll close us in prayer and we'll respond in worship. Lord, your word says the hope deferred makes the heart sick. And we, we hope we're hoping that this is you in this move, in this space. But, Lord, we say to you right now as a church body, uh, we pray the way Jesus taught his disciples to pray. uh, Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If this is your will, if this is what you want for Emmaus Road Church, we are happy to step out in faith and to trust you as we step forward. And if this is not what you want for us, Lord, then we don't want to move. We want to be like the children of Israel in the book of Exodus. And when, when the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day, when it moved, they moved. And when it stopped, they stopped. And we want to just stay right in step with you and what you're doing. So God, give us clarity. Even as I meet with the pastor tomorrow, would you make it abundantly clear what it is you want for us? And Lord, I know, I know every, every leadership manual, every pastor, every book on pastoring says, do not do what I just did this morning. Don't bring the congregation into these decisions before they're made at this, at this kind of level, because the disappointment of it not happening can be debilitating, but Lord, how much more exciting for us to pray together, to seek your face. And then to hear you answer us either in the positive or in the negative, whichever way you answer us, you're answering us. And we need to hear from you. And so we together, corporately, collectively, we beseech you, Lord, be clear with us. Our heart is that you provide this, but nevertheless, Lord, your will be done. So, Lord, we thank you in advance for the clarity of your response. We thank you for your goodness and your provision for our church. We thank you for the grace of the cross that covers our sins. You're a good father, and we love you, and we worship you.